You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 208, Fort Morris and Augusta. A few weeks ago, I covered the British capture of Savannah, Georgia. This was the first real effort by the British to do anything in the southern colonies since Sir Henry Clinton failed to capture Fort Sullivan back in early 1776. Even that earlier assault in Charleston Harbor was a sideshow to the main British effort from 1776 through 1778 to control the middle colonies, particularly New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. With that whole effort in the middle colonies having come to a failure, the British in 1779 focused more on trying to restore control of the southern colonies with limited armies that they still had available in America. The capture of Savannah at the end of 1778 was the kickoff to that new southern campaign. George Washington had already issued orders recalling Continental General Robert Howe by the time the British attacked Savannah. But at the time, he was still in command during the battle because his replacement, General Benjamin Lincoln, had not yet arrived. Howe's loss at Savannah in a rout drew criticism from all sides. Georgia officials complained that Howe had not done enough to defend the state. Other Continental generals criticized him for trying to defend Savannah against a superior force rather than simply withdrawing and not getting half of his army captured. General Howe at last relinquished command and traveled north for a new assignment. After court-martial acquitted the North Carolina general's leadership in the Southern Command, he would spend the next year at relatively unimportant commands in Connecticut and in the Hudson Valley. The new Southern commander, General Benjamin Lincoln of Massachusetts, had just returned from the recovery of injuries sustained in the Saratoga campaign a year earlier. Despite sharing in the credit for the American victory at Saratoga, Lincoln's record as a military commander was, shall we say, limited. He had been a militia officer before the war. Of course, virtually every man in New England served in the militia, and most officers were selected for political prominence rather than military ability. Lincoln had been a minor politician and from a good family, which probably led to his commission as an officer in the militia. He saw no action during the French and Indian War, but still managed to rise to the rank of major. He held local office in Massachusetts and became a prominent patriot leader, serving in the Provincial Congress and the Committee of Safety before the war. During the Siege of Boston, his primary role was obtaining supplies for the army. In January 1776, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress commissioned Lincoln a major general in the state militia. Most of the other top military officers had taken commissions in the Continental Army. Lincoln remained in Massachusetts when the Continentals moved on to New York later that year. Lincoln attempted to bring several militia regiments to New York, but never managed to get down there in time for any fighting. Despite this lack of a combat record, Lincoln began lobbying his friends in the Continental Congress for a commission in the Continental Army. In February 1777, Congress granted him a commission as a major general. 
You may recall back in episode 134, Lincoln commanded a small group at Boundbrook, New Jersey, protecting the main Continental Army from attack. The British managed to sneak up on his outpost, Lincoln and his men had to run for their lives, and the general took ridicule for having fled his tent without his pants. Later that year, Washington sent Lincoln and several other top generals to assist Horatio Gates with the British who had taken Fort Ticonderoga and were moving south through New York. Lincoln did a reasonably good job working with the difficult militia general John Stark and otherwise assisting Gates with the campaign. Although Lincoln did not really play a notable role as a combat field commander, he did manage to get badly wounded the day after the Second Battle of Saratoga and was out of commission for a year. Washington's decision to turn over the Southern Command to Lincoln was really Lincoln's first test as an independent commander. Lincoln was at Charleston, South Carolina when the British took Savannah. He had been awaiting the arrival of 2,000 North Carolina militia to bring South with him. But having received word of the attack, Lincoln left Charleston with a couple of regiments and began moving toward Savannah. He caught up with the remainder of General Howe's army, which was retreating up the Savannah River. The men established a base about 20 miles north of Savannah at Perrysburg, South Carolina. There, even after combining with the Continentals who had been with Howe, Lincoln had a little under a thousand men in his command. Nowhere near enough to contest with the 3,500 soldiers that had just captured Savannah. So Lincoln had to sit tight and wait for reinforcements. The British had taken Savannah on December 29, 1778, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell. It was an awfully large command for a colonel. The plan had been for Campbell to bring the troops down and await the arrival of General Augustine Prevost from Florida to take command. But when Campbell arrived at Savannah, he determined the defenses were so poor that it made sense to attack immediately and not await Prevost's arrival. Since his attack was successful, nobody really criticized the decision later. Word of the planned assault on Savannah only arrived in Florida 10 days before Campbell captured the town. Prevost had left St. Augustine for the march north into Georgia, but had a 200-mile march through rather difficult terrain before he could reach Savannah. General Prevost came from a wealthy family of French Huguenots. He was born and raised in Geneva, Switzerland, and spoke French as his first language. His father died when he was still a teenager, and he and his two brothers began a career in military service. They initially worked for the King of Sardinia, who controlled the Netherlands at the time. Uh, during the Seven Years' War, Great Britain recruited them from the Netherlands to serve in the British Army in a new Royal American Regiment. Augustine's older brother, Jacques, became the regimental colonel, Augustine became a major, and their younger brother, Mark, became a captain, all in the same regiment. Augustine served in America under General Wolfe and was wounded during the Quebec campaign and a few years later moved up to the rank of lieutenant colonel. Near the end of the war, Prevost briefly served as interim governor of West Florida after Spain ceded the colony to Britain. After the war, Prevost married the daughter of a wealthy Dutch merchant and moved to America, where he began to raise a family in New Jersey. At the outbreak of the Revolution, Colonel Prevost was military commander of East Florida. 
In several past episodes, I've mentioned his political disputes with Florida Governor Patrick Tonin. As the revolution began, East Florida was a political and military backwater where Prevost had less than a regiment to command at times, and he struggled with the growing rebellion to the north. Many loyalists from Georgia and the Carolinas made their way down to St. Augustine when violence from the Patriots in their homes became too much to take. Governor Tonin and General Prevost fought over who should command these militia units. By late 1778, London was getting more serious about taking back the southern colonies. It had promoted Prevost to brigadier and ordered Prevost to take command of the army that General Clinton was sending from New York to capture Savannah. Now, prior to the capture of Savannah, most of Georgia's defenses were along the southern border designed to prevent raids from British-controlled Florida. Many of these defenses were still in place. Prevost had been active in southern Georgia that fall. Commanding small groups of regulars and loyalists, the British contested ground all through the southern part of the state. After the British victory at Alligator Bridge, the Americans had generally ceded the parts of Georgia closest to the Florida border and focused on their command at Savannah. Prior to the arrival of the regulars in late December, Prevost had been directing attacks to harass the defenses around Savannah. In November, Prevost had launched an assault that reached Sunbury, about 40 miles south of Savannah. With 750 regulars and loyalists under the command of Prevost's younger brother, now Lieutenant Colonel Mark Prevost, and with the assistance of loyalists under Colonel Thomas Burntfoot Brown, they laid devastation to the lightly populated region. Prevost planned to take the village of Midway with his regiments marching overland, while another assault force sailed upriver with another 500 British regulars and militia. Continental Colonel James White commanded about 100 Continentals and militia at Midway, the target of the British assault. He was joined by newly commissioned militia general James Screven, who had a grand total of 20 militia soldiers with him. General Screven tried to set up an ambush to hit the advancing loyalists under Colonel Brown before they could reach Midway. Unfortunately, the ambush site that Screven selected was already occupied by Brown's loyalists. So the loyalists ambushed the Americans and killed several of them. Screven was hit 11 times, but survived to be taken prisoner, although he died several days later. With the loss of General Screven, command fell to Colonel White, who prepared for a final assault. He had command at Midway, the British loyalists under Colonel Brown, and supported by Colonel Prevost and his regulars, had a massive numerical advantage. So, in the end, White had no choice but to withdraw. However, he left a forged note which ordered him to withdraw so that when the British advanced, the American cavalry could hit them from behind. Colonel Prevost found the note. Although there was no American cavalry, Prevost believed the note anyway, and because of that note, hesitated in his advance. That, combined with the fact that the regulars he had expected to arrive aboard ship were nowhere to be found, Prevost ended the campaign and marched back to St. Augustine. After Prevost withdrew, the British ships, which had been delayed by unfavorable winds, made it upriver to Fort Morris at Sunbury. Even without Prevost's army, the fleet had over 500 soldiers, with maybe only 120 Americans defending the fort. 
the British commander, Colonel Lewis, disembarked his soldiers and surrounded the fort. Lewis sent a letter to White saying that multiple armies had the fort surrounded and that he should surrender. White knew that the other army Lewis expected to find there under Colonel Prevost had already withdrawn and said as much in his reply. He then famously said that if the British wanted the fort, they could, quote, come and take it. Colonel Lewis confirmed for himself that Prevost and his men were already gone. The purpose of his mission had been to support Prevost. He didn't really see any point in trying to take an entrenched position with cannons if the rest of his army had already left. So, Lewis put his men back aboard ship and sailed away. Now, all of that happened in November of 1778. In late December, General Prevost marched a much larger force out of St. Augustine with the ultimate goal of reaching Savannah. By the time his army reached Fort Morris on January 6, 1779, Prevost knew that Colonel Campbell had already taken the city of Savannah a week earlier. However, more than 200 Americans and 24 cannons still held Fort Morris. This time, the British did not back down and began a siege of the fort, supported by over 2,000 regulars, loyalists, and Indians. The commander of the fort, Major Joseph Lane, had received orders to abandon the fort and withdraw after the fall of Savannah. Major Lane, however, was unfamiliar with the area. He tried to get several locals to act as guides, but the locals persuaded him to stay. Once the British arrived, Lane mounted a respectable, if hopeless, defense for three days. On the third day of the siege, a British cannonball hit the fort's powder magazine, causing a massive explosion. With that, the garrison surrendered, suffering only four dead and seven wounded over the three-day siege. The remaining garrison became prisoners. General Prevost left a small force to occupy Fort Morris and continued on to Savannah. Having captured Fort Morris, General Prevost arrived in Savannah on January 17th, and assumed command from Colonel Campbell. As I discussed a few weeks ago, Colonel Archibald Campbell had already taken the city, so after taking care of Fort Morris, Prevost had a very easy entry into Savannah, where he assumed command. Both Prevost and Campbell received compliments from the Americans for their relatively kind treatment of the civilian population. Several American leaders noted that because Campbell had been treated so poorly when he had been a prisoner, they feared that he might exact revenge on American prisoners. He did not. The area around Fort Morris became a prison camp for hundreds of captured prisoners, and the British treated them rather well. The British also held back on wholesale looting or any retaliatory actions against the civilian population. They hoped to restore civilian rule quickly and allow courts to resolve any local disputes rather than the army. In many ways, this followed the policies that General William Howe had implemented when he first took New York. The goal was to re-establish the king's peace and convince locals that British rule was a good thing. Winning the hearts and minds of the civilian population was key to turning the colony back into a royal colony. Georgia, however, would still have a military governor. Augustine Prevost did not want the job. In fact, just after he arrived in Savannah, he wrote to General Clinton to say that he wanted to retire from the army. Colonel Campbell became the new governor of Georgia, and General Prevost's brother, Colonel Mark Prevost, became lieutenant governor. 
the British plan was to turn Georgia back into a productive colony that would serve as a source of food for British forces in North America. Trying to bring meat and vegetables across the Atlantic Ocean in a sailing ship without any sort of refrigeration or canning was an expensive process that resulted in much of the food spoiling en route. Georgia's large plantations and cattle ranches offered a valuable source of food for the army, both on the continent and on the islands in the West Indies. The other goal was to use Georgia for a base of operations to take back the Carolinas. St. Augustine in Florida was simply not large enough or close enough to launch major operations, and sea landings could be much more difficult. The establishment of an army in Georgia gave the British a perfect base from which to march north and take Charleston by land. As it had hoped in other colonies, the core force of British regulars would establish law and order, loyalists would take over as militia to maintain the royal government, and the regulars could move north into South Carolina and then do the same thing there. Since Georgia only had a population of maybe 15 to 20,000 white settlers at the time, and only about a third of those were adult males, and a good portion of those were thought to be loyalists, the plan to take back the colony with an army of three to 4,000 regulars plus militia seemed more than adequate. But Georgia did not really have any large population centers. The people were spread out on plantations all over the colony or state. Savannah was the largest town in Georgia, and Sunbury, where Fort Morris was located, was the second largest. The army needed to expand on that by moving soldiers further inland to establish control there. Now, the Continentals, of course, did not want to see that happen. General Benjamin Lincoln, as I said, had established a base at Perrysburg, South Carolina, about 20 miles north of Savannah and right on the river that marked the South Carolina-Georgia border. He only had a force of about 1,000 soldiers, but was awaiting 2,000 reinforcements from North Carolina. Even that was not enough to take back Savannah, but at least it could keep the British bottled up around the town and prevent the occupation of the rest of the state. Prevost, however, was not going to let that happen. He led a force of about 2,000 soldiers upriver to take a position directly across from the Continentals at Perrysburg. At the same time, Colonel Campbell took an army of 1,000 on an inland march through Georgia to pacify the colony. On January 31st, Campbell entered the next largest city in Georgia, Augusta, with almost no resistance. Aside from the large force just across the river from the Continentals, the British began spreading out in small garrisons all across Georgia. The British Army would establish order, recruit loyalist regiments from the local population, and begin making plans for an offensive into South Carolina. Many Georgia loyalists who had fled to East Florida returned to Georgia to reclaim their farms and return to normal life. The British Army provided a ready market for whatever crops or animals they could provide. The Army also seized the farms of leading patriots who refused to submit to British rule. London saw the reclamation of Georgia as a great success and an auspicious start to the new Southern campaign. Around the same time that Colonel Campbell was marching his British into Augusta, Continental General Lincoln finally received his reinforcements from North Carolina. By the end of January, Lincoln had an army of over 3,000, including more than 1,000 Continentals. 
even if the Americans could not defeat the British in Georgia, they could at least keep life from becoming too comfortable there and discourage British desires to march northward into South Carolina. Continued American challenges to British rule in Georgia would result in a number of skirmishes and battles over the first few months of 1779, and then later, with the cooperation of the French fleet, would result in a massive siege of British-occupied Savannah later that same year. But those will have to be the topics for future episodes. Next week, we're going to return to Philadelphia, where the Radicals bring charges against their military governor, Benedict Arnold. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to my Patreon supporters and the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, Lewis White, and George Hunter. Thanks also to supporters in the Robert Morris Circle, Kurt Vard, and Lee Seam. Also thanks to Merv Waldron and Edward Diaz for one-time support via PayPal or Venmo. Given my ever-increasing costs of running this podcast, I really rely on voluntary support of those who can afford to help for as little as $2 a month on Patreon. This allows me to keep everything available for free for those who find themselves unable to pitch in. I also wanted to mention that I'm adding three new t-shirt designs this week. They include one for the Continental Army Board of War, a Ton Tavern t-shirt for you Marine Corps fans, and a Vermont Republic t-shirt, which is a variation on the Green Mountain Boys design. Again, if you have any suggestions for a design you would like to see, just let me know. I've included a link to the Tee Public storefront on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. Last week, I did a Independence Day live special episode instead of a regular episode. That followed the live in-person event that I did the weekend before in Philadelphia. I've been trying to find some new ways to reach out to you guys, my listeners, and see what people like. If you have any suggestions for other sorts of things that I should be doing, or just want me to stick with my traditional format, I'd love to hear from you. 
Now, this week also marks the fourth anniversary of the American Revolution podcast. I just did an update on my audience growth for episode 200. So I'll just say that I recently passed 2.4 million downloads and hope to hit 2.5 million by the end of the month. If I can keep up at this pace, I should be able to hit 3 million by the end of the year. Now this week, I followed up on the capture of Savannah. American General Benjamin Lincoln and British General Augustine Prevost took command of their respective armies and would be facing each other for the next year or so. We have the British trying to solidify their control of Georgia by taking Augusta, which is one of the larger inland towns in the colony. Colonel Campbell taking the lead on that. We also see Campbell taking an appointment as colonial governor and Augustine's brother, Mark Prevost, as lieutenant governor. After Campbell leaves Georgia, which he will do shortly, Mark Prevost takes over as field commander, working under his brother, who remains in Savannah. There's an interesting side note about Mark Prevost's wife. Prevost had come to America during the French and Indian War, along with his brother, General Augustine Prevost, and both of the brothers had settled in New Jersey after that war. Mark Prevost married a 17-year-old local girl named Theodosia Bartow and had five children in pretty quick succession. When Prevost transferred to the West Indies shortly before the revolution began, he left his family in New Jersey, most likely because tropical diseases were a real danger where he was going. When the war began, Theodosia found herself surrounded by patriots. She could have very easily been branded a traitor for her marriage to a British regular and had her home and property confiscated. Instead, though, she entertained Continental officers and did what she could to ingratiate herself with her husband's enemies. George Washington was a guest in her home for a time. One Continental officer in particular, who happened to be 10 years her junior, became absolutely infatuated with Theodosia Prevost. The couple soon began an affair. After Mark Prevost died in Jamaica in 1781, Theodosia married her new lover, Colonel Aaron Burr. But I digress. This week was our second look at the start of the Southern Campaign with the capture of Georgia. This military campaign will dominate the next few years of the war. If you like military histories, you're going to like this week's book recommendation. It's called Savannah, The War Moves South by Scott Martin and Bernard Harris. This book is part of a series of books on various military campaigns. It's relatively short, and it focuses specifically on the military history of the Georgia campaign, beginning with the capture of Savannah and going through the siege of Savannah that takes place at the end of the year. It's not what you'd call an academic work, but it is written for the military history enthusiast and goes into a great deal of detail on the Savannah campaign and the various battles that surround it. So, if you like a book that focuses really on military history, this is a good option. My online recommendation is The History of Georgia, containing brief sketches of the most remarkable events up to the present day. Now, don't be deceived by this title. The book was actually first published in 1784, so the term present day should not concern you that a large portion of the book devotes time to the state of Georgia after the Revolution. The book's real focus is on the colonial era and the war years. 
The author, Hugh McCall, was an army officer after the war and lived in Georgia for some time. As always, you can find a copy on archive.org or use a direct link on my website at www.amrevpodcast.com. My question this week comes from Syed, who asks, Is it true that George Washington never partook of communion? If so, why? Well, George Washington was raised Anglican and attended church pretty regularly his whole life. Like most gentlemen, he purchased a pew in his church for his family's use. Prior to the Revolution, Washington regularly attended services, and yes, he did take communion. He served as a vestryman and a church warden. He even assisted in the construction of Christ Church in Alexandria, and also contributed to a number of other church startups, including a Catholic church in Baltimore. During the war, Washington made an effort to visit a variety of churches, including St. Mary's Catholic Church in Philadelphia. I focus on the Catholic issue. He did, did visit a number of other Protestant churches, but because there was a Catholic-Protestant division at the time, the fact that a Protestant man like George Washington would visit a Catholic church and support Catholic churches was a real sign of religious tolerance. Washington never really publicly articulated why, but the presumption is, of course, that he wanted to encourage religious tolerance among the public. As president, he also visited a Jewish synagogue in Rhode Island and famously wrote a line in favor of religious toleration. Quote, For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens. Now, following the Revolutionary War and his presidency, Washington returned home to Mount Vernon and resumed weekly church attendance in the Anglican Church. However, beginning at this time, he notably did not take communion, something that many people noticed and commented on. At one point, his minister chided Washington because he set a bad example by leaving early when services gave communion. After that, Washington simply refused to attend church services at all on days that celebrated communion, which at the time in the Anglican Church was only a few times each year. Washington was very private about his religious beliefs. He never discussed them publicly or in any writing that has survived. So we don't really know why he refused to take communion after the war. His wife Martha did take communion during that same time. Now, I've read some speculations as to why this might be, but they really are just that, speculation. So the bottom line is we'll never know why Washington failed to take communion after the war. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>